Now, many of us uh, might have caught some of the incredible pomp on display in London for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. As the commentators continued to say, did you notice, no one does it like the British. But will the British keep it up like that? In the near future, will its modern entity, the United Kingdom, even resemble its current character? That prospect of breakdown regularly appears in various commentaries these days in some beautiful writing, going beyond the usual analysis of Scottish and uh, Welsh independence too. It's more about identity. Plus, their cost of living pressures seem considerably more acute than ours, especially around energy price rises. And their Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, that's a whole other story, facing a litany of problems, some of his own making, others not. Will this close cultural relative of ours be recognisable before very long, during all those copious visits that Australians make? Well, our first guest this hour, Tom McTagg, writes for the Atlantic Journal from his home in London. He's penned a number of unmissable articles this year on these issues, including one titled How Britain Falls Apart, a road trip through the ancient past and shaky future of the disunited kingdom. So much to talk about. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, states that have forgotten who they are tend not to last long. You quote someone uh, describing that, looking back at the sudden collapse of the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire in the la- in the 20th century, and you say the grim reality for the UK in 2022 is that no other major power on earth stands quite as close to its own dissolution. Now, could you expand on that for us, please? Yeah, so I think this, the the odd thing about uh, examining Britain or the United Kingdom is how much of a sort of consensual union it is compared to other countries. If you look around the United States or, or Europe, say, it's effectively illegal to secede from those countries. You know, we've seen it in Catalonia. We've obviously seen it with the United States with the uh, with the Civil War, but in Britain. We don't have that. We allow referendums to take place in in Scotland. It's baked into our um, international treaty, the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. All it takes is for 50% plus one of the people who live in Northern Ireland uh, to vote to leave the United Kingdom, and they are guaranteed to leave and to to absorb themselves into the Republic of Ireland. I'm not saying these things are wrong, but it creates a sort of fragility in the Union that is very, very different to France or Germany or the United States or even Australia. So I think what it relies on, what what Britain relies on, is people to um, is to consent to this Union. So uh, unless they consent, unless they feel British, unless they believe that the country that they live in is Britain rather than Scotland or Wales or England or Northern Ireland, then the whole thing is more uh, is more at risk of falling apart. Yes, and you look, you develop it. Uh, you say it's not so much an existential crisis; uh, it's a spiritual crisis. Uh, you, what again? What are you getting at? Yeah, so it's it's this sense of um, 
we have these competing identities in in Britain in a way that I think is quite unique when you look around uh, when you look around the world. In Australia, everybody in Australia is Australian, right? It's a simple it's a simple concept. In Britain, you can be multiple things at the same time. You can be English, Welsh, Scottish, Northern Irish. You can even be Irish and British. Some people would say that they are Irish and that therefore you can't be British. So and, and that all exists within the United Kingdom. So the United Kingdom is one of the the, the last um, states that exists where it the, the, sort of the nationality is not directly in its name. And that's why it's like almost like a hangover from these old states like the Austro-Hungarian Empire or former land empires uh, in Europe that, of course, fell apart because of the, the growth of nationalism within those at the, at, at the end of the First World War. And we forget that, of course, the United Kingdom came apart under the same pressure of nationalism and the First World War. Uh, when most of Ireland went uh, became independent, so this thing has happened before. It's not like it couldn't happen again. Um, so, so what it re- what it relies on is this is this um, is this sense of spiritual belief in the thing that you uh, that you live in, and I think that's what's being questioned now. We are you see um, what is very noticeable actually about being in London now during the Jubilee celebrations is that you're seeing the Union flag, the United uh, the the Union Jack, rather than the the St George's Cross of England or the uh, or the Saltire in Scotland, because that is what you usually see now. So that means the English, because I think you also say uh, Britishness might have been unifying, but Englishness is not. Well, yeah, Englishness is, well, it depends where you are, right? So Englishness is not unifying for the whole country, the whole country of the United Kingdom, because you know, by definition, there are parts within that uh, within the United Kingdom that aren't English, that don't feel English. Um, but England, the Englishness is unifying within England. And it is a state that has essentially looked pretty much as is for a thousand years. You know, this is the borders of England, along with, I think, Denmark, are about as stable as you can get the oldest nation in uh, in in Europe, so it's 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 not possible to sort of rub these things out and just create Britain and make everyone forget that this thing England also exists, and that's why there's this sort of multi layered. Um, complex challenge that exists. But I was going back through history recently and thinking of Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, and other parts of of the dominions of the British Empire. And only in the 50s, when um, the Queen came to the throne, the Australian Prime Minister described himself as British. He said, I'm British to my bootstraps. (laughs) The the ends of Britain... That's Robert Menzies, and the and the the the, um, the shores of England or shores of Britain do not end in Kent. And the and the the day that she was about to be uh, crowned, uh, the um, the first ascent of Everest took place, and it was the British flag that was put on top of Everest. But it was a New Zealander who got to the top. But in his mind, there was no difference. So you can see there that this sense of greater global Britain. Well, that disappeared because it wasn't, people didn't believe in it anymore, rightly, understandably. But that could happen with, within the UK as well. 
I mean, look, we must talk about your family's road trip holiday called Will Britain Survive? It's so (laughs) good to read. You talk about a stop in a holiday resort called Butlins. Gosh, there's a throwback. In Somerset. Tell us about this place and how it compared to others. For instance, the the literary festival you drove to in Wiltshire um, straight after it. (laughs) The contrast is too, it's hysterical. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's an eye opening it's an eye opening event because I I we had three months off as a family um, because I um, I had paternity leave to take and we had all of these ideas about going around the world and because of the pandemic all of that became impossible so you 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 could only really stay in in your own country but that that was this great blessing in a way in that it forced us to see these parts of the country that. We'd always liked to have seen, but we couldn't, you know, the Isles of Scilly in the far south, the Shetland Islands in the far north. And it gave us the time to be able to try different things. So we were coming up from the Isles of Scilly in um, south of Cornwall, and we were trying to figure out somewhere to go. And we looked on Booking.com and up popped this uh, option of Butlins, which is this sort of very working class, old fashioned um, holiday resort uh, that will often be sort of looked down upon by the sort of English middle classes. Um, uh, but it up, up it popped. And I have a, I had then a four-year-old and a, and a sort of uh, under one-year-old. And we thought, you know what, they'll love it, even if we don't. Let's go. Let's try it out. And it's this flashback to a different time in in England, in Britain, my my mum sent me a, um, a a message saying, and she went in, into into the into the loft and she took out some pictures of herself on her only holiday as a child, was driven down from Birmingham by her parents to this very same Butlins resort, and she pretty much stayed in the same little tiny chalets. Um, that look like um, God. They they're just like sheds that run next to each other down right by the seafront. And they haven't changed. The beds are tiny. You go into the same um, place to get your it's sort of like a canteen and you queue up and you get your fried eggs and your fried bread and your fried sausage and your fried bacon. And it's the, and, and you know, this is eye opening for um, my parents were working class, but I was definitely brought up in a sort of middle class English household, uh, taking a holiday to, to Italy and things like that. So this was a sort of a, a real throwback, but it was such good fun at the same time. You know, then you left to drive to the um, uh, Chalk Valley History Festival in Wiltshire, <laughs> which is deepest Essex. It was as if we'd left a camp, but Butlins for Anglo-Saxon serfs and arrived at a <laughs> gathering for their Norman lords. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> See, I mean, that's always been there in England, of course, but you're implying that there really are such fissures there now that you don't, We, yeah, you're saying, uh, will this really amount to a sort of uh, impossibly difficult to maintain if, we're go- if you're going to sort of undermine the Britishness of it all? Well, I think, I think actually the, the, the class system, um, people in Britain are, comfortable with i don't i don't think in a way that that challenges them so you, a lot of working people will be very supportive of you know the, the monarchy of um aristocratic sounding conservative um members of parliament prime ministers um it's it's not a threat it's a kind of it's 
one understands. And what was so interesting for me is I'm I'm from the north of England, so there is also a sort of north-south divide here in England. And for me, it felt very southern. And in a, it was a kind of England that I wouldn't ever feel entirely comfortable in in this in this Wiltshire Valley you know it was you know the poshest sounding guys you could imagine they all wear a kind of uniform of you know think kind of um I don't know boating regatta outfits you know all pastel colors pink trousers and cardigans and people talking to each other about uh, Wagner and and all this kind of stuff and it was you know it was incredibly pleasant and I had friends there and it was you know it was glorious weather and it was strawberries and and lovely green valleys but I'm never going to feel comfortable there. You know, that was a realization that hit me. These aren't my people. I'm not going to feel comfortable. They're lovely. Just, but just like Butlins really isn't, isn't going to be where I feel comfortable. And, and I think you get at this kind of micro class divisions in Britain are, are there. And I think I, I often wonder whether foreigners can possibly see it in the way that we do. Oh, well, yes, that's very debatable. I agree with you. But what do you lead to? So, and it really troubled you in a sense, I think, watching all this. But you you say that um, some pe- people believe, especially after Brexit, that it is no longer worth trying to save the UK. Um, they actively prefer the thought this is your words, of being a less powerful but more settled European country, a greater Holland rather than a mini United States. I mean, that's really a big change of, of sensibility. Yes, I, I think what, is, what has happened is, it, what I'm trying to do is, is, is layer on two competing um, elements here. So if you go out of England and you go into Scotland or if you go to Wales or Northern Ireland, you see, um, you don't see the Union Jack. You see the Saltire uh, or the Welsh flag, or, or, or in Northern Ireland, you see all kinds of flags. But in in, in Scotland, is is the is the cornerstone, the key, the key nation mm. of the Union. And up there, you don't have um, the the sense of belonging to a British nation rather than a Scottish nation is under is under challenge. And I argue that you can't it can't just be kept alive by um, by money, by transfers of money from from London. People have to feel that this is their country as well. And I think what has changed after Brexit to a certain extent is that it has heightened that sense because Scotland voted to remain and uh, the whole of the UK voted to leave. So they have a, a sort of legitimate mm. grievance there. But in England, the, the the sense of the sort of patriotic middle classes that felt British and would say that they were British more than perhaps English, which was maybe the preserve of the, of the working classes, those middle class people who voted to remain in the European oh, Union have been so disillusioned with the fact that we that we left uh, and the people that are in charge that they feel that this thing. They're they're sort of um, I don't know not not so much pride but um, what's the word they're just their sense of, of fairness and that this thing is you know is is it more actively harmful uh, because it's this pursuit in their view of a sort of lost greatness of Britain that they don't feel comfortable with. 
How how interesting. How, uh, and into the brew is D- Boris Johnson <laughs> in the middle of all this. I mean, you followed him through the course of his career and you're very interesting about him. Um, that You write that scandals have followed him, almost too numerous to note. Thus far, he's surviving. And you've got a quite interesting psychological explanation for this. Do tell. The, the, the reason that he survived... Yes. Well, well, the, the way he conducts himself, he's the minister for chaos, but it's somehow so far, <laughs> I wonder, uh, he's getting away with it. But surely people will get exhausted by it, won't they? Well, yes. I mean, the, 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 Johnson is an incredibly um, uh, powerful politician in that he, um, he, he, he goes against the rules that apply to everybody else. That is, you know, to protect yourself, you must be as controlled as possible. You must... Um, don't let anyone harm you. Say only what uh, you know is on is on script. Johnson is the opposite. You know, he hides a kind of element of ambition and control in this character that is Boris Johnson. That is not so much fake. I think that's the wrong way to think about it. it it's been part of who he is from school. It's the same. There is this incredible consistency of Johnson's character. Uh, in fact, I, I spent a long time researching an episode in his life where he came to Australia when he was younger. And uh, I was speaking to all these professors in um, uh, Monash University. University. It oh, was Monash. Uh, Monash. Monash. Yeah, and, and, and he was there and he taught this class. He, he'd come over when he was, he was younger. And they described exactly the same guy that exists today. He turned up late for lectures, bumbled in. The audience started laughing immediately. He fumbled to get out his laptop. Um, he started reading and he was sort of like all over the place, lost his place. The audience loved it. And, and then reverted to Latin. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and they like it. And and he plays up to the stereotype of the kind of bumbling British uh, sort of, uh, you know, lower aristocrat. And, and people warm to it. So everyone said, that they that they liked him, although there was a sort of sense of shallowness about it, um, and that is the same guy that you see here. Um, that's the same. That's the same person. People warm to him um, from very early on. But I think what you see within him actually is, if you, if you get closer to him, there is a control underneath. When you when you watch him in an election, he doesn't veer off script he's just much better at staying on script or, or or looking like he's staying on script than others because it's all part of a chaos and with gags and jokes thrown in all over the place um and that's the interest that's the interesting thing about him he's um you know he can Look, I've, I've just got to interrupt you because there's a wonderful line you say uh, as as johnson once put it intelligence is really all about energy that yep. seems to be a yep. very interesting hint Exactly right. In all of Johnson's writings, they're all really about himself. You know, so he'll praise, uh, say, Silvio Berlusconi, and he uses this image of Berlusconi as a, a an olive tree growing through a rock, and it's this this sense that a personality you cannot get, you know, kill this personality. It will force itself through the driest of landscapes and and cling on to life, and that's what he loves above everything he hates sort of patronizing dry boring gray suited characters who lecture him he feels like that's you know these people have been lecturing at him his whole life and he's got to the top and he's got to the top and he's not going to change now that gets him into trouble 
um, but it's also the thing that allows him to pick on uh, on issues and run with them quickly. So we're seeing that over Ukraine now, for instance. Yes. He is he is out in front. He's going to Kiev. And he put money into AstraZeneca when nobody else did too. Exactly. So, so, so when he makes mistakes in the pandemic, you know, so not locking down quickly enough, it has catastrophic uh, effects. You know, we had a higher uh, death rate in the first wave, but he doesn't. He he does not bashful after that. He doesn't sort of go, "Oh my God, I better be cautious the next time." He does it again, and he rolls the dice again, and then he backs AstraZeneca, and and then he hits the jackpot, and then he gets some credit for the world. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, Tom, look, um, we'll have to have you back. (laughs) There's too much to talk (laughs) about as we watch this year unfold. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tom McTagg, he's a London-based writer for The Atlantic. Check out his writing. It's really good. (laughs) A couple of texters have come in. Give the Brits a break on their special weekend. You're just jealous, says John. Well, look, I am a bit but I will be going there before terribly long, so I will sample it. And somebody else, uh, unnamed, said, knotted hankies and Roman sandals uh, with with socks. (laughs) Those were the days at Butlins, I assume. (laughs) Ah, they are endlessly amusing and um, interesting and provoking. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.